Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 15? It is good to be with you again today. I thank God for the fellowship that we have in Christ and also for the opportunity to see what He's doing here in your midst. It really is a wonderful thing. Listen as I read to you from the Word of God, Psalm 15. A Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. O Lord, we are gathered in this place to worship you. We exalt your holy name, Father, Son, and Spirit. We rejoice in who you are, in your beauty, in your majesty in your greatness, and in your goodness and kindness in revealing yourself to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and new life that you give. We thank you for the wonder and the beauty of the Christian life. We ask now as we study your holy word that you would come to us by your spirit and help us to understand and to apply this word to ourselves. Glorify your name in this time, we pray, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In commenting on this psalm, John Calvin suggests a possible occasion and setting for its composition. He surmises that perhaps David watched as throngs of Israelites approached the tabernacle of God, knowing that many of them were hypocrites and others were genuine followers of the Lord, and so he poses the questions that are found in verse 1. You see, David knew that not all Israel was true Israel. Even though they were all, by birth, members of the covenant community, many were, in fact, covenant breakers. Their lips spoke of the Lord, their bodies performed all of the necessary and appropriate actions towards the Lord, but their hearts were far from Him. And so David contemplates these questions. Who is it that rightly approaches God. Now, I have a simple outline for this morning's sermon. It has four points, the question, the answer, the interpretation, and the application. That's it. That's the structure, the skeleton of the sermon. The question, the answer, the interpretation, and the application. So let's get right to it and think through Psalm 15. Let's consider first then the question. Notice it again. David asks, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Well, that's straightforward enough, isn't it? But it's important to contemplate its significance. Now, in in one sense, it's a single question that is expressed two times in what we call Hebrew parallelism, a very typical pattern that is followed in Hebrew poetry. The questions are not identical, 
The second question adds some information to the first, but they belong together, and they form one question. Look at your Bibles and notice what it says. The first thing that we see is the word Lord. Now, it's printed for us, probably in your Bible in the same way that it is in mine, all in uppercase letters. That's an indication to tell us that this is the covenant name for God. It's a means that our translators use so that we can see what is behind, uh, what Hebrew word is behind the English word that we have in front of us. Here it is God's covenant name, the self-revelation that he gives to his people, a name by which he is unknown among the nations. And David, as he addresses the Lord, writing this psalm, is asking this question, who, which person, who among the multitudes of worshipers qualifies to live in your presence? The language that David uses is quite strong. Who may abide? To abide is to take up permanent residency. Who may come to your tabernacle? Now, it's not the temple. The temple waited for Solomon to be built, but the tabernacle was a tent. It was the symbolic dwelling place of God, a tent that was pitched among the nation so that they might see that God dwelt in their midst. And so David is asking the covenant God of Israel, who is it that may live in your presence? Who may approach you and who may stay there and dwell with you? The Hebrew parallelism continues on with a similar idea, but with different expressions that gives us a little bit more information. Lord, who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, the holy hill of God is Mount Zion. God dwells symbolically on the mountaintop, and Mount Zion is the place where he chose to reveal himself among his people. You see, the tabernacle was intended by the Lord to occupy a high place. This is one of the reasons why uh, the kings who failed to destroy the high places of the Gentiles, that was a bad mark against them. Because the presence of those high places of worship to Gentile gods, to idols, was an affront to the Lord God who claimed the high place for himself. If we were to take the time, we could turn to Psalm 48, and it would make the point very well. Psalm 48 describes to us the greatness, the glory of Jerusalem, of Mount Zion, of the holy hill where God dwells. And so as David looks to the tabernacle, and as David sees worshipers on their way as they ascend the hill, he asks the question, Lord, who may take up residence with you? Now, I hope you would agree with me that that really is an urgent question, isn't it? Because it separates true followers from the hypocrites. The language that David uses says something to us about his thoughts. Dwelling or abiding is very different from visiting. I'm a visitor. God willing, I'll be home uh, soon and be able to sleep once again in my own bed, and my daughter will pick me up at the airport and all will be well. I won't be here next week to be with you. You dwell here. I, I'm here so that I can serve, but I don't live here. There are those who would go to the tabernacle, not just to visit, but to give an effect so that people would see them and think of their religiosity. You see, David knew that some did only this, and so he contemplates, who is it that can approach? Who is it that can stay? Who can live in God's presence? The question is straightforward, is it not? But that leads us to his answer. We need to think about verses 2 through 5 because this is, what David, this is how David responds 
to his own question. Who may abide? Who may dwell? Well, his contemplation brings answers. Some of these answers are positive, that is, they are characteristics that are present in the one who may, be, uh, who may dwell with God, and some of them are negative, that is, things that are to be absent. And there is a pattern to the way that David responds to the question. He starts with a positive, goes to a negative, returns to the positive, brings forth a second negative, all of which lead to a specific conclusion. So let's think through this process as David presents it to us. Verse 2, the first positive, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Now, three words, three strong verbs of action, to walk, to work, and to speak. The word walk, of course, you know, means a description of lifestyle. It's not about one's gait or one's progress from point A to point B, but rather it's a metaphor that is used to speak to us about the way that a person lives. The person who may take up a dwelling in God's presence lives uprightly, that is, in holiness and in personal integrity. Righteousness characterizes the way he or she walks through life. To work, the second verb that we notice is a verb that reminds us about actions. The one who does or who acts righteously, whose deeds are pleasing and acceptable to God. That's David's point. When he speaks about the one who works righteousness, he's using the term righteousness to speak about that which God himself accepts. God is pleased with these actions. God receives the one who works in this way, and he brings them into his presence. The third verb that David uses is the verb to speak. And he uses this to, of course, talk about the fruit of one's lips. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the text, that the speech is in the heart. And Calvin helps us to understand what's going on here. Calvin says this, To speak in the heart is a strong figurative expression, but it expresses more forcibly David's meaning than if he had said, from the heart. It denotes such agreement and harmony between the heart and the tongue as that the speech is, as it were, a vivid representation of the hidden affection or feeling within. Calvin, Calvin is exactly right. The words that come out of the mouth are consonant with the way that this person walks and works. The words are words of righteousness that are fitting and appropriate to the state of the soul within. Now, you know, what I would say is the answer to the question begins with an awfully high standard, doesn't it? It really does. But let's keep going. Verse 3 is the first negative. You'll notice the word not. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up reproach against his friend. The first line of verse 3 picks up the thought with which verse 2 concluded, and it continues the idea about speech. He doesn't backbite with his tongue. The contrast is clear. The words that come forth from his lips are true words, and he will not speak against, his, uh, his, uh, against someone else. He will, he's not a person who speaks kindly to the face of another while despising that one in his heart. And then when that other person is absent, speaks against him 
because he is absent. That's when the truth comes out. David says, no, that doesn't characterize the man who dwells in God's presence. Then David continues on with this thought. Now it's not the tongue, but it's doing evil to the neighbor and taking up a reproach against his friend. You know, there's probably a parallel between verse 2 and verse 3 in reverse. You students understand the ABCCBA pattern. That's what we have here. That's what's going on. Where David thinks in, he, he presents himself in three ways, and then in reverse order, he picks up the same things as well. So when we read verse 3, we can say the first line matches the last line of verse 2, the second line of verse 3 matches the second line of verse 2, and the third line of verse 3 matches the first line of verse 2. Uh, it's it's a, a chiasm, as it's called. And so David here speaks to us about um, the way that an individual acts towards others. He won't do evil to his neighbor because he works righteousness. He doesn't take up a reproach against his friend because he walks uprightly. And the focus here especially is on the middle part of verse 3. He doesn't, um, he, he doesn't do evil against his neighbor. That is, he doesn't break the second great commandment. What David is saying here is the one who may dwell in God's presence is the one who loves his neighbor as himself. That's the qualification, to be in the presence of God to love your neighbor as yourself, to take what we call the second table of the law, the final six of the Ten Commandments, and live them out, walk in the light of them, and then that person is able to stand before God. Verse 4 leads us to a second group of positive thoughts. Notice what it says. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Now this is a couplet. These two qualifications belong together. And what David is saying is the one who may dwell upon God's holy hill is a discerning person who is able to distinguish between people and despises some while honoring others. Now, let's pause just for a moment. Doesn't that seem like an unusual and unexpected positive qualification to actually despise someone? But he despises those who are vile. He despises those who are evil. He despises those who stand in the way of others and cause them, lead them into sin. But he loves those who honor the Lord. Now you see, the way that we're able to distinguish between despising and honoring is with the Lord in mind. That's the deciding factor. The one who keeps people away from the Lord or the one who draws people to the Lord. The one who lives a life of wickedness and the one who seeks to honor the God of heaven and earth, he is able to honor, this person is able to honor them. The deciding factor in the way that he acts towards others is how these people walk towards God. You know what we have here? We have the first great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the, the third part, the third line of verse 4, picks up this relationship again between heart and word, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The man who may dwell in the Lord's house is the man who keeps his word. When he swears, when he promises, when he vows, he follows through, even when it means that he hurts himself. Even when it means that he faces some kind of self-inflicted difficulty. He gave his word, he will do as he said, 
And he will keep, keep the oath, keep the vow, keep the promise, whatever it is that he has said. That's what a righteous man does. Then in verse 5, we are led to the second negative. And this describes the man's use of his money. Nor does he put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And the idea that David has here is that the one who may dwell in God's presence is the one who will not abuse the poor. Now, if you're looking at an ESV, your Bible probably says interest. That's a good, reasonable translation. I have the, old, uh, the, the New King James Version in front of me. It uses the word usury. We might ask, what is usury? What does that old word mean? It means to take advantage of others by means of excessive rates of interest or other means of financial gain. Or to put it simply, it means keeping the poor in poverty by abuse of financial relations. The godly man won't do this. The one who qualifies to be in the presence of God won't do this. And likewise, he won't take a bribe. He can't be bought for the sake of lies. That's another way to oppress people. If he doesn't take exorbitant rates of interest, he also will not oppress the innocent and protect the guilty from deserved punishment because that's what a bribe does. A bribe gives me money so that I will say what is untrue either to protect you or to cause difficulty to others. We need to remember the words of the Apostle Paul, words that are frequently, at least in our culture, misquoted. You remember when Paul says in 1 Timothy, the love of money, not just money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6.10. The one who may stand in the presence of God doesn't love money. He's not moved by the love of money. He's moved by righteousness. And that leads us to the conclusion of the answer to the question at the end of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does them. He will remain in the Lord's presence forever. The Lord is the one who cannot be moved, and so those who are in his presence will not be moved. They will join together with him and remain there forever and ever. Now that's the answer that David provides to us. Let's come to the interpretation. Do you agree with me that this is a very high standard? And we ought to ask the question, what do we make of this? I don't want you to answer out loud. I don't want you to put your hand up. But let me say this. Does this psalm encourage you? It doesn't encourage me. It doesn't encourage me. If you apply it carefully to yourself, in all honesty, do you qualify to dwell in God's holy hill? If you, if you look through these answers that David provides in response to his question, do you qualify? You know, there's a traditional interpretation. Many commentaries on the book of Psalms have this interpretation. It's based upon a false idea of what the church is, but it presents this psalm as a means of distinguishing between the sheep and the goats or between the wheat and the tares in the church. It sees the visible church as a mixture of the two, 
while the invisible church, the true church, consists only of those who are described in this psalm. Hypocrites live one way, the faithful live another, and that's clearly the majority position among the commentators. They're basically saying that if you live a holy way, you may dwell on God's holy hill. And I have to disagree with that interpretation. I think it's wrong, and I'll tell you why. It may be the easiest and most straightforward way to read the text. Perhaps it's the obvious way that we are to understand the text, but it's incorrect. Now, why is this? Let me give you several reasons why we need to read this psalm in a different way. First off, it doesn't fit the context of the surrounding psalms. You know, I, I've come to really love the book of Psalms. There's, a, there's several work, a lot of work has been done in the last couple of decades on the book of Psalms. And one of the things that we've learned about it is that there is a context. The, the Psalms have not been randomly put together, but they've been put together for specific purposes. We don't understand all of the purposes. Sometimes that's obvious. When you look at the, uh, the, the Songs of Ascent, for example, from 120 to 135, you know that they've been brought together for a purpose. But I would suggest to you that Psalm 15 is where it is in order that it might be read in a certain way. So I want you to look with me at the context of the surrounding Psalms which will help us to understand what's going on in Psalm 15. For example, turn back to Psalm 12. Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Who may dwell, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Well, Psalm 14 would say, no, not one. No one. If we apply it to humans, if we apply it straightforwardly in the context, no one is able to approach God's throne. Then next is Psalm 15. Let's look at Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O oh, my soul, you've said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. From where does David's goodness come? It is not his own righteousness. It's not because he's righteous in himself. He doesn't have any goodness apart from God. Now, some might say, but brother, hold on a minute. The psalm is about relative righteousness, not absolute righteousness. The deeds of a godly person is over against the deeds of a hypocrite. And I can say, well, that's possible. Let's think about it. Notice, for example, Psalm 17. 
Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You've tested my heart. You've visited me in the night. You've tried me and have found nothing. I purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. David is able to call upon God and claim his innocency as he speaks about his relationship to the Lord and the way that he conducts his life. But let's keep reading. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps might not slip. You see, David, even when he protests about his own innocence, must cry out to the Lord and say, the only way that I'm able to do this is with your help. Once again, David's not claiming that this is his own works, his own actions, but that what he is in the innocency that he protests against or before the Lord comes as a, on the basis of the fact that God is the one who does this. Look again at Psalm 15. Think about the question. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And then skip all the way down to the last line of the psalm. The answer, he who does these things shall never be moved. Think of the question and think of the conclusion. These are not relative terms. These are absolute terms. They are qualifications for permanent residency in God's presence. To abide, to dwell, to never be moved. These are strong words. David recognizes this fact. So what does he mean? What is he saying? Is there anyone who can do these things? I want you to notice with me a key phrase in verse 2. You see, um, the, the old King James, the new King James, the new American Standard, ESV is a little bit different. It's not bad, but it's different. These other translations read this way. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness. Take those two words, works righteousness. ESV says, does what is right. That's a reasonable paraphrase of the, the idea. Does what is right, who works righteousness. Now here we are, we're on Reformation Sunday. We think about justification by faith. We think about Martin Luther and the things that he taught us has helped us to understand about the fact that we cannot work righteousness. Now usually when we use this phrase, we use it verbally. I'm, I'm sorry, we use it as a noun. Here it's a verb. But doesn't it jump out at you? He who works righteousness. You know what it is? It's a form of do this and live. So I ask you the question, is that how we stand in God's presence? Do this and live? You see, the traditional interpretation only leads to discouragement and to shame and to doubt. Because I asked the question, I said to you before, the psalm doesn't encourage me when I read it like this, I ask questions such as, who can abide these things? Who can fulfill these things? Who can do these things? Or to take up David's question, who may abide in the Lord's tabernacle? Who may dwell in his holy hill? And I have to say, not me. Not me. That's why I, I'm not encouraged when I read the psalm this way. Not me. I can't look at it. I can't say those things truly about myself. I don't fit. I'm not the man of Psalm 15. Let me suggest to you 
that there's another way that we ought to read the psalm. And it seems to me that David is not writing this psalm in order to promote introspection and discouragement. Rather, David is writing prophetically to turn us away from ourselves because he does describe someone who does these things. He describes someone who works righteousness. He describes someone who earns the right to dwell in God's holy hill. So we ought to ask the question, David, who is this one? Who are you describing to us? Let me tell you who it is, and we'll hear David's own words from Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod, the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Or maybe just a few pages before, turn over with me to Psalm 2, just for a moment. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and, and distress them in deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The Lord has said someone upon his holy hill in Zion, one who may dwell, one who may abide forever. But there's one more psalm I want you to look at with me that makes this crystal clear. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 24. We already heard this psalm, parts of this psalm earlier today. Notice carefully what's going on here. We have a, a, in the first two verses, we have a claim of God's sovereignty. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. It belongs to him. It is the Lord's. That's, that's the view of the world in which we live in all of it. It belongs to him. Then look from verse 3 through verse 6. What do we have? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Does that sound familiar? It's very similar to the language of, of the beginning of Psalm 15, isn't it? We continue reading. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Now, the terms are not identical, but the concept is the same. What, what David is saying here in Psalm 24, he's asking the same question and giving a very similar answer. The one who is able to ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy place is a righteous man, a holy man. And then you see that little Hebrew word, Selah, which means pause and meditate. Think about this for a moment. Now, if you're reading consecutively through the book of Psalms, you recently have read Psalm 15. We're, not, we're only nine Psalms away in Psalm 24. And if we were to stop here, we'd say, okay, that's pretty similar. Who is this man? But in Psalm 24, David goes on, and he gives us the answer. Now, as he looks heavenward, he gives a command to the heavenly throne room. Lift up your heads, O you gates, 
and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. You, you see the, the imagery here of God's holy hill, of Zion, of the dwelling place of God? David is clearly addressing as, as if he personifies the, the wood and the beams and the doors. He, it's as if they could hear him. Why does he say this? Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Here's, here's the interpretation of Psalm 15. Because David expands the same thought, but he gives us a great deal more information. Psalm 24 is a messianic psalm about the kingship of Messiah. It's about his investiture as the king of all things. The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. Who may dwell in his presence? The one who is righteous. And the one who is righteous approaches the, the gates of heaven itself, and they open for him, and he's welcomed in because he is the king of glory. It seems that Psalm 15 must be understood in the same way. Let me put it this, like this. Jesus Christ has completely and perfectly satisfied all of the acts of righteousness that are described in Psalm 15. He is the man of Psalm 15. He is the one who abides in God's tabernacle and dwells in his holy hill of Zion. Who is this man? It's not me and it's not you. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who it is. Now you know what? I love Psalm 15. Now it's very encouraging. Because it's, let, let me put it this way. If we read Psalm 15 and apply it to ourselves, you know what it is? It's law. Because all it does is condemn us. It shows us our sins. It shows us that we cannot stand in God's presence based on what we do. But when we read it and we see our Lord Jesus Christ here, it becomes gospel. And it's all about gospel, because it's not calling us to qualify to live in God's presence. Rather, it's pointing us to the one who himself has lived that holy life and now dwells in the presence of God forever. And so, my friends, I ask you the question, do you see Christ in Psalm 15? Do you trust in him and in him alone? Because he is the man who is being described here. He alone is righteous. He alone is the one who fits all of the qualifications presented to us. And you must find your righteousness solely in him. If you think that somehow, based upon your works, you can qualify to live in the presence of God, I have to tell you as straightforwardly as I can right now, you're wrong. You will fail. You will think that you're coming to the gates of heaven and you will be turned aside and sent to the gates of punishment. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has lived that holy life, went to the cross, endured the wrath of God, satisfied, propitiated for our sins, satisfied God's wrath, was buried in the tomb, rose on the first day, ascended into heaven, now sits at the right hand of God, and he offers to us forgiveness if we trust in him. Don't try to be the man of Psalm 15. Recognize that you will never do that but trust in the gospel that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. Don't be discouraged by Psalm 15. It is meant to cause you to look to Christ. He has fulfilled the Lord's righteous demands. I've talked a lot about the context of 
Psalm uh, 15. Let, let's look at Psalm 8 again. I'm sorry, Psalm 16, verse 8. Picking it up in verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And what does, how does Psalm 15 end? He who does these things shall never be moved. I won't be moved because Christ won't be moved because he has done everything that I need. David understood this. His stability comes because of the Lord who is at his right hand. Now, because we see Christ here, and because we recognize that when applied to us, this psalm is about law, we have to be careful not to fall prey to antinomianism, to think that what it tells us is unimportant for us. Rather, because of who Christ is, and because of what Christ has done, we ought to read Psalm 15 and say, I can't qualify, but I will show my love to the Lord by seeking to bring these things into my life and live in this way. Who may dwell? Who may abide? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Brothers and sisters, those things ought to describe us. Not because we are seeking to earn God's favor, but because he in his grace and mercy has saved us from the pit of destruction. Because these things characterize what a, a, a life of faith is about. So when you read Psalm 15, it's a call to you to live a holy life, to think and speak the truth, to love your neighbor, especially how you act towards God's people, to discern between good and evil, to despise all evil, and to love the Lord your God above all. You see, if you trust in your own righteousness, you will fail. The last day will be the worst day, and it will never end. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, you will abide in God's holy hill. Let's go back to the beginning. Calvin imagines that David is looking at a throng who ascends up to the tabernacle high on the hill in Jerusalem. I ask the question, who did David see as he watched the throng walk to the tabernacle. And I would say this, by faith, he saw Jesus Christ leading his people to the worship of God. Let's see Jesus Christ and seek to serve him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for a psalm that in one way condemns us, in another way it fills us with joy. Forgive us for thinking that in any way we may live to qualify to dwell in your presence. We confess that we have nothing, we are nothing, but thank you that you've given to us Christ. By faith in him, we may dwell forever in your presence. We give you praise, we give you thanks, we ask you to apply these words to our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.